This, um, <laughs> this reminds me, I was an academic, you as you're an academic, this seems very a familiar setting for both of us. Exactly, absolutely. Uh, and yet I somehow still feel like a kangaroo interviewing a hunter. So, uh, so there you go. <laughs> now there's two common criticisms, Rebecca, that are often made about politicians. Um, one is that we're too inclined to follow rather than lead public opinion. And the other one is that we're out of touch with what people think. So what is the right role for opinion polling in politics done well? That's a really good point. I suppose one of the difficulties, and I, I talk a lot about some of the difficulties of being a modern politician, is once upon a time you, you might have got a poll every couple of weeks, one poll, there would have been some internal polling that the party would have done, and a bit of other research. And you got a little bit of breathing space as a politician. Um, now, because we have the technology, there's a poll every other day. It may not be on politics, but it might be an issue that affects politics. And um, because the media is so hungry for political polling, they're constantly reading into even just fluctuations, <laughs> you know, in the two-party preferred uh, polling or, or um, the prime minister, you know, preferred prime minister. I mean, I think that one of the things that polling should do is it should be included um, amongst all the other bits of information that politi politicians use to weigh options. Um, and some of it might be stakeholder engagement, so what, what people um, in industry or in NGO or in civil society say, what your philosophies a political party might say, what the local electorate require, especially if you're in the lower house, such as yourself, and it should be part of that, um, part of a range of different, I suppose, um, information that you balance when you make decisions. Of course, that requires two things. It requires the skill to be able to do that and it requires the time. And as you know, um, that kind of space for reflection is quite difficult in modern politics. Um, I would never, I always think that polling is the beginning of asking lots and lots of questions, not the end of the conversation. Um, and I have seen very, very effective politicians and, and industry leaders look at polling and say, okay, that's where the electorate is and that's where we want to go um, for a whole range of reasons because we believe it's where we need to go and because um, all the experts are telling us that's where we need to go and how do we need to bridge that gap rather than, oh, we can't possibly do anything about <laughs> We can't possibly do anything about that. Let's move on to something else which, um, you know, might be easier or... or um, uh, to argue. And does that come down to, for example, changing question wording and see whether, seeing whether or not particular policy conceptions, if framed differently, might be more attractive? Is that a sort of more Burkean use of yeah. polls in which you're uh, applying your, your in industry and your intellect to reform rather than simply being a, a cipher for what the, what the polls say? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot made about, oh, how was the question framed and, you know, who was the sample and everything. And, and sometimes that can be overblown. I mean, often when people say that, if they don't like the results of the poll, <laughs> I'm a much greater advocate of what do the different sources of information say about this particular thing. So I'll give you a really good example. Let's say you did um, a poll um, a couple of months after Kevin Rudd was elected that said, uh, are you worried that an ETS is going to make your electricity prices higher? And you might get a big chunk of people who say they don't know, a big chunk of people that will say yes. 
the problem with that, it's not to say that you're not measuring actually levels of anxiety. You're assuming people know what an ETS is. You're already making that connection between an ETS and electricity prices going up. And what you're not doing is including other bits of information about whether people value a transition, an overall transition to renewable energy, whether they think a price on carbon is an inevitable thing, whether they think that, in fact, the sooner we put a price on carbon, the, the cheaper it's going to be, the more we delay, there's more um, opportunity lost. And the qualitative research, this is why I'm a qualitative researcher and like using surveys, so really kind of the depth of material to realise that is that level of anxiety measured about this something that ends the conversation or gives us direction about what else we need to argue? So I'm a big, I'm a big fan of using lots of different data sources to really get to the heart of what the problem is rather than kind of one a, a response to a bare question and the statistics yes. based on that. The old pastiche of evidence. Approach. Yes, exactly. Um, one of the sources of data you use is uh, focus groups. Mm -hmm. um, you have uh, quite a lot of stories drawn from focus yep. groups, but you also have this troubling suggestion that one of the big changes on climate policy came out of uh, some quite small focus groups that were, uh, were, were done at one point. Persuade us, so I mean, we know focus groups tend to be small and they tend yep. to be fairly yep. unrepresentative. Yep. Persuade us that this is more than kind of politics by dinner party. <laughs> Uh, well, if it's a dinner party, it's a really poor one because there's no <laughs> alcohol and the food is terrible and um, everybody, they're not friends. <laughs> um, look, I think that focus group... Uh, look, I've, I've done 15 years of focus groups, which I tried to tally up with my last book um, how many Australians I've either visited their house or met over 15 years, and it's tens of thousands, um, and I've worked with teams as well. So... When you do that much, when you do that much focus groups, it becomes almost representative. Um, I think if you're talking about the same thing. Yeah. Well, you're talking about. We're always talking about the same things. We're talking about Australia, where we want Australia to go. That tends to be what my research is about. Um, I think that what, in the same way that um, a response to a question or survey work. Um, gives us a sense of how many people feel a particular way. It's only really um, in-depth qualitative work that makes us understand why they feel a particular way. Um, and the more complicated the issue you're trying to measure, the more important it is to do that extensive qualitative work. And I would say the two issues where really understanding whether where the statistics itself don't give us enough depth is immigration and climate change. They're two areas where um, pressing concern, anxiety, but also um, areas where the electorate want the federal government to lead. And so really understanding how people respond to those issues because they're very emotional issues is something you can only get by extensive qualitative research. Now, if you have um, the right sample, a large enough sample of people that you talk to, sensitive researchers who know how to analyse it, then it becomes a really, really useful tool in, relation, in combination with the survey work. And one of the things I've noticed after 15 years is that it's often in a group that I know that, um, that something's going to happen long before it's going to happen. I'll give you a really clear example. 
in January of the of 2007, and that election was in 2007. Election was in August. No, sorry, it was in October, November. Do you remember? I don't have the month in my head. No. I'm sure there's someone in the in the room that has the precise date. It was the end of that year, and I was in, I was uh, in a focus group, and Kevin Rudd had only been the member of uh, a very the opposition leader for a while, and this one man said to me. You know, I was talking about John Howard and he said, the thing about John Howard is that he doesn't think climate change is real, he doesn't want to do anything about it, and we do, and he wants to do something about work choices and changing the way that, um, uh, you know, industrial relations run, and nobody wants that. And he used to be really good at, at understanding what the electorate wants, and I think he's, he's off his game. And there was just that moment, that kind of moment that, uh, uh, that one voter was able to crystallise a mood in the electorate that was clearly there in all the other bits of research and I, I kind of knew in January, February that he would win. I didn't know how much he'd win by but it was, it was pretty clear. And so every now and then in a group, if you, and perhaps that's over time, you get to really understand why the national mood has shifted, often by just a very, very perceptive comment by one individual. I also knew that um, Tony Abbott would win when I was in another group where somebody said, God, I hate that bastard, but I'm going to vote for him. <laughs> it was just like, I just can't, I just can't vote for the Labor Party. And I really dislike him, but I'm going to vote for him. And, that, and, and I really realised that he was going to win because if people really disliked him but were still going to vote for him, then there was something, that kind of inevitable feel of that a government was going to change. So there's something just great about listening to people and talking to them that gives you mm. a real insight into the national character but also why we see the kinds of why why are why is the pendulum swinging and it's only qualitative research that can give you that yeah so you've, the central argument in your quarterly essay as i read it is that there's a social democratic majority for some significant reforms in australia yeah. so let's go through some of them yeah. um social and affordable housing absolutely yeah Where's that coming from? Well, so the social affordable housing thing is interesting, and this is one area where I've seen over 15 years the, pub, the broad public's view about whether the market can deliver equality has changed. Can the market really deliver um, intergenerational equality and can it, um, uh, can it deliver on the Australian dream? And really, at the beginning of my um, research career, there was still this sense that, oh, look, if, if governments release enough land and if there's a couple of you know, incentives and people work hard enough, then they'll all be able to get into their own home. It'll be fine. Um, and year after year, things got harder and harder in terms, of, in terms of housing. People started to notice more visible homelessness, but hear stories of invisible homelessness. So I'd be in groups where somebody would say, we just found out the other day that basically Glenda's living in a car and at a, on, her daughter, on her daughter's, you know, couch. So there was this sense that at the bottom end, people were struggling. Then in terms of that middle class, about parents saying, look, my kid is better educated, working hard, but really not being out in the rental market, not being able to save, and there must be something wrong, that you've got all these investors getting tax breaks and they're getting four, five, six, seven properties and two hard-working young people can't afford their own home. So suddenly all of these questions up and down, I suppose, the, the generational tree and the socioeconomic tree that's up to the top 
And of course, I haven't even talked about people over 65 and the issues around homelessness there and the issue around, you know, entering the rental market. If you haven't owned your own home, you can't pay off your mortgage and you're suddenly finding yourself suddenly in retirement because at 60, you find yourself out of a job or in um, precarious work. So everybody was asking these questions and then slowly, slowly, people started saying there's something that government can do. And it's not just about investment in social and affordable housing. It's rethinking a policy that for a long time there was bipartisan support, which is negative gearing. And so um, there was a real appetite for thinking um, the market hasn't delivered, property investors have done well, overseas property investors have done well, um, property developers have done well, but what's happening to the rest of us? And, um, and so then you start to see a real desire for um, more effective and more innovative government intervention in the market in terms of housing across the board. And interestingly, from your point of view, a shift from thinking this is entirely something that maybe local government or state government should mm. be concerned, enough of a national priority to be considered that the federal government should play a leadership role and set some standards and, and intervene. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of odd combination of policies where negative gearing comes out in 1936 in order to help us in the Great Depression, then the capital gains tax discount comes out of the 99 Ralph Review, and then these two policies, which weren't designed to, to affect housing, come together and yeah. turn landlords from people who are paying net tax in the 90s to people who are uh, getting net tax breaks in the, two, in the 2000s. Yeah. And I don't think anyone on either side of politics expected no. it. What about progressive taxation? You say that only a little over a third of Australians support the idea that uh, someone on 40,000 and 200,000 should be on the same tax rate. Yeah, they don't think that's a good idea. Um, perhaps people less on the, the $200,000 um, end of the scale rather than the other end of the scale. Look, I mean, after about the third draft of the essay, um, I had a critical reader who Remain, still remains anonymous, who said, look, this is all very interesting, but the reality is, is will people pay more tax for better services? You know, obviously everybody wants all these things. To what extent are they prepared um, to forgo something? And I thought a lot about it, and I suppose the f I was lucky because I'd spent quite a bit of time in the essay already talking about the frustration more broadly about perceptions of inequality in the tax system mm. um, and um, while certainly her reporting was attacked from some quarters, generally people um, believed Emma Alberici <laughs> saying that some companies and some wealthy individuals are paying no tax, so that was a frustration. So um, there was this real sense that we could reform the tax system to make it more equitable, but there was a great block in terms of thinking that that was going to happen, even under a Labor government, if um, political parties were still reliant upon the donate on, on donations. So there was a cynicism that no political party will really bring about that important adjustment if it harms the very people who fund their campaigns. And so that, I suppose, is a threshold question, unless we kind of deal with those two issues and in some ways they're tied up with people. And and yes, it's very convenient for the electorate to say, well, if you don't deal with that, I don't want to pay any more tax. But I think they are still issues that need to be dealt with. And I think 
The extent to which people on middle incomes, who recognise that they're on middle incomes, that's another question, will really say, look, I'm prepared to give to pay more tax in order to get the kind of healthcare that I want, or the NDS, NDIS properly funded, is really a question of trust. Will there be that reciprocity? If I give the money, will I see it return to me? Perhaps not in exactly the same way, but in a similar way, so that return. And so that's where I think Bill Shorten really usefully said in Adelaide last year at the National Conference that he said, uh, and I was quite moved by this, he said our greatest um, foes are not the opposition and not any other political party is trust that democracy is going to deliver. Mm. And um, I think, I know that you're fascinated with tax and you understand the tax system more than most people, but I think that a Labor government, um, if we have that at, at the federal level, um, can start to talk to people what, what a, um, how slowly we can start to um, reform the tax system in a way that makes people feel that there's that reciprocity. Um, and that is the found, and then and then you're in a position to start to say to people, well, look, if you want these things and we're going to deliver them, then your tax, the tax system might you might be paying a bit more tax rather than a bit less. It's really interesting on that point. I've been listening to a series of the podcasts with some of the Democratic contenders for for the nomination, the U.S. presidency, uh, and a lot of them are asked about their top priority and say it's things that have to do with restoring trust in democracy constitutional reform, the idea of getting rid of the electoral college, um, having a day, o day off to vote, getting more automatic voter enrolment, they see those sorts of issues of the, the fabric of the democracy as being fundamental to whatever they want to achieve. And, and we're so lucky, I mean, one of the, I know it, I was so excited about this when I found this um, piece of information in the Australian Electoral Commission papers, but I was really quite amazed that in this, in the last 10 years, in a period of, of peak frustration with federal politics, that informal voting in Australia had not declined. I mean, if, if, if you're getting from the electorate, oh, they're both as bad as each other and it's terrible and, you know, every time I vote for a Prime Minister, he doesn't stay in or she doesn't stay in for, you know, as long as I'd like. You'd expect informal voting, I think I know everybody in the room understands what informal voting is, would steadily decline and it hasn't it's actually increase. it's actually increase. sorry increase it's actually slightly declined yes although if you look at voter turnout it was the lowest 2016 was the lowest voter turnout since compulsory voting was introduced in 1924 yes. put that together with informal voting and the share of australians casting a valid vote is the lowest it's been in 90 years yes, so i wouldn't get wouldn't be too optimistic about the the informal voting kind of uh, flatlining Yes, but I think I know. But I mean, I think you're right. That's that. That's that cynicism. But it's not as bad as you would imagine it could be. And this is the thing. In the end, I think when Australians actually get into the into the um, ballot box, they take it seriously. So moving to another one of your. But then to go back as well. What about the same-sex marriage um, survey? That didn't make you feel like um, the, the the extent in which people got involved in that. That didn't make you feel like. There were some things that are, the Australian democracy is still alive in it yet. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was a good idea. I didn't think it was healthy no, it for the mental, mental health of yeah. young Australians. But uh, once they were forced to go through the process, many young Australians engaged on it. Uh, I would notice when I went to schools, the top two issues that came up would be climate change and same-sex marriage, um, far more frequently than tax or reconciliation, which we're about to come to. Yeah, but I, I think it's not just about young Australians, although that was a good 
thing that actually showed that they were prepared to, to be part of it was the whole community. Mm. Almost the whole community for something that was not compulsory. Yeah, no, it was a, a very tractable issue, perhaps more more so than the than the Republic. And I think the, also the interesting thing is that the results of that survey were not unlike all the other surveys. <laughs> I mean, we didn't it's exactly the same. That's why we didn't know it. Yeah. So the other thing that I thought was interesting about that was that the people who thought that it was likely that that so it, you were no or yes or even undecided, you were still part of it. So. I don't think that we can tax and put pressure on the Australian electorate with bad politics for too long because we're seeing some real um, signs of stress in some places, particularly in the idea whether the democracy is able to solve some of the more pressing problems, like climate change is probably a good example, is, is, is our democracy fighting fit to solve that problem? But I think we hear to such an endless stream of cynicism about politicians, an endless stream of criticisms about politics, that you'd expect worse results um, across the board. And also, I would say from focus groups, the thing that always strikes me is that when you talk about politics, people start with, oh, they're just as bad as each other. And, but if you spend some time, after about 20 or 30 minutes, they'll start to talk. Um, about the kind of policy issues that matter to them, about the stuff of politics, and um, they'll also start to talk about the things that they think are good about how our democracy is set up. So compulsory voting remains something that the majority of the community support. Again, you'd expect, they'd say, well, if we think they're both as bad as each other, let's just get rid of compulsory voting. Um, no real evidence that there's a, um, that there's been a decline in support for compulsory voting. And things like, you know, Americans are still fighting for a day off to vote, fighting for um, uh, reform in terms of when you can get yourself on the electoral roll. It's unbelievable. So um, that's why I think I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic about the capacity for the Australian community to be involved in democracy and to think it... Um, you know, to be optimistic about that. It's up to politicians to, <laughs> to do better so we don't, like I said, we don't put continual pressure on that and increase the cynicism because then we will start to see some problems. We shouldn't leave this topic without a plug for Judith Brett's new book. It's which, a fantastic uh, book. In fact, I'd like them to we... be sold together. Yes, well, uh, we're kind of doing that in that yeah. uh, Judith and I had a conversation about her book here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, so uh, reconciliation. You say there's a, uh, you think part of your sort of uh, democratic, social democratic majority includes support for the Uluru Statement in the Heart. Tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so I suppose, I mean, we probably um, need to distinguish formal, formal recognition. So you mean reconciliation or recognition? Both. Uh, well, I'm just uh, going off your, yeah, your yeah. comments there about the Statement in the Heart. Um, I think that, you know, for a long time there's been an argument about whether... Um, formal recognition in the constitution for First Nations people, that's the one that everybody has support, you know, there's the majority of support for and that's what we should go, which is really the lowest common denominator reform. But I, I was a bit surprised about the extent to which various aspects of the Uluru Statement to the Heart, including Statement from the Heart, including the voice to Parliament, had, I suppose, a foundation of support before it's even really been 
Um, I would say uh, there's been a kind of broad-based education campaign or I mean, even though it's been talked about before we've even engaged in any kind of extensive selling of that idea, um, very, very early on in that process, a couple of weeks after um, it was first announced, various aspects of it were put to a poll at a, when I was at Essential and I was a, a pleasantly surprised about the extent to which some of them were getting support. So. And that's without any leadership, I suppose. It's also, I suppose, some people would say without any scare campaign about what it means. But um, I'm a bit interested to see the extent to which in various kinds of groups people feel like this is unfinished business and um, in the past things like the apology to the stolen generation has been good, but the people have seen that the gap um, uh, remains big. And so there, I think there's a bit of an appetite for a more... Um, impressive reform in that space. And I also think some of the uh, the kind of erroneous distinctions between symbolic reconciliation and practical reconciliation, I thought Jenny Macklin spoke very well about this in her um, maiden speech, don't really work with people. People understand that um, First Nations people want jobs and need housing, but how that's, how that's kind of that's all they get and all that other stuff is not what they get. I think they see the, the connection between the two much more than perhaps some political leaders would allow. Euthanasia? As always, there's been support for a long time. In fact, the um, group of um, voters who seem most supportive of euthanasia, according to the Australian Electoral Survey, are One Nation voters. So the sort of libertarian kind of... Uh, no, maybe they just want, just want to, maybe they want, I have no idea, I have no idea. I could make it a very inappropriate joke on your podcasting. Um, no, I think there's, that has been, um, and not just the work that I quote in the essay, but uh, that has been one of, one of those issues where with each year we see more and more support and now it's just kind of petered out at quite high levels. Um, and... It's one of those things that, you know, even though Victoria had, it wasn't the easiest reform to get past, there's no evidence that there was an electoral backlash about that particular issue. And I think more and more, um, many generations want to have a conversation about um, the right to die on their own terms. And I think that's really important. Mm. You have a curious comment, almost a throwaway line at one point, where you talk about social democracy's blind spot in immigration and race issues. Can you say a little more about that? Um, it wasn't so much as I mean, it's a very important issue. Um, I felt like I needed to talk about it in the essay, but it was never in in the absolute direct brief. But I was reflecting on, you have to reflect when you're making an argument that there are the conditions in the electorate to reform social democracy. You've got to have a think about, well, what were some of the problems with the social democratic vision as it emerged? Um, uh, you know, at the turn of the century and, and in its different variations in different countries throughout the 30s and 40s and so forth. And, um, and the, the two issues that I pinpointed was, uh, you know, issues around the environment and also issues around race and ethnicity. And, of course, Australia has a massive problem with racism and race and ethnicity and, and that's existed on both sides of the parliament. So um, I... 
I just wanted to recognise that that was an issue and also highlight, I suppose, one of the problems when you make an argument about Australians' um, commitment to egalitarianism and equality is that it was always partial. The white man's paradise was a white man's paradise and the kinds of arguments about everybody should get access to healthcare and everybody should have a home and everybody should have human rights and all those other kinds of things don't tend to apply to people coming here by boat and sometimes only marginally apply to the first generation um, of any migrant group. So, um, so we have to put both the fight for climate justice and um, anti-racist policies at the centre of any social revival of social democracy. They're not um, added extras or a nice add-on or something to think about. And I suppose um, particularly for, um, uh, for our politicians who consider themselves to be social democrats, that means we have to make sure that the ranks of our parliament, our parliamentary ranks, are more diverse and include people with a lived experience of racism, not because of tokenism, but because they're often the best people to articulate why racism is a problem. And when Penny Wong gets up in, in the Senate, we really, really listen to the personal stories she's got to say um, about um, what's happened in Christchurch or what's happened with hate speech. It's not to say that other politicians aren't articulate and they don't feel the issue, but we really, in that creative and urgent need to fight against racism, we need the people for whom um, racism is a lived experience to be able to not only talk about it, but to be at the centre of, of developing anti-racist policies. Yes, and Section 44 hasn't exactly helped in terms of increasing the number of people born overseas in the Parliament. In no, it's true, years. isn't it? Uh, so uh, one of your, uh, the, the fascinating aspects of your, uh, your essay deals with climate change, and there's, there's three numbers that really struck me. Um, one is that 8% of Australians are climate science deniers, but when people are asked what share of the population are climate science deniers, they think it's much higher. They think it's yes. 23%. Yeah. That was the CSR, a really good piece of research by the CSR. Why is that? Well, I think, um, I mean, that's quite common. You know, people kind of uh, never really think that how they think is representative of the rest mm. of the community. So um, that's, a, that's almost like a, a common thing throughout um, research when you say, oh, well, you know, to what extent do you think people accept this and you'll give it, and then you'll, it, it will depend on the issue about whether it's more or less. So, yeah, so that's, that's the first thing. I think the second thing is that people understandably mistake the fact that we're, we seem to be still in an argument about whether climate change is real to mean that, <laughs> that more of the community are undecided mm. or there's some kind of thing that we have to keep arguing about. I think if we were, have, we were spending a lot of our time on, okay, it's real, um, what are we going to do about it, that that number would come down. So I think that they see the division in our parliaments, the division in the media, as somehow representative of an uncertainty and that we're still here arguing whether it's real or not. And Whereas we, they've moved on, it's real, what are we going to do about it? Yes, although to you, some extent. you quote John Roskam as saying that he <laughs> thinks half of the coalition party room don't believe the science. 
Yes, he said, half don't believe and the other half are pretending. So I think one of the things that was difficult is I actually thought, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through every member of parliament, of federal parliament, I couldn't go through all of them, and try and work out who on the record has said that climate change isn't happening or been, I suppose... So there are different ways you can, you can characterise people who deny climate change. There are people who say it's happening, but, that's, but the reef is fine. <laughs> <laughs> or it's happening, oh, but that's got nothing. The drought is, you know, the drought's got absolutely nothing to do with climate change. So it, it is actually quite difficult, and especially if you decide only to go on Hansard or any kind of official comment and not, um, I suppose, gossip. Um, so in the end, I kind of tried to, with the help of um, Tim Bashera, I tried to do as much as I possibly could because I was interested to see whether the percentage of climate change denies in the community was more or less than the ones in federal parliament. But that was actually quite difficult and I wanted to make a point about that in a minute. So in the end I thought, well, who's a, the real expert on how people in the LNP think about this? And he said, well, the main um, think tank for the LNP. So I think we can believe John Roscom on this point. And in fact, I was on, um, I was on Q&A with him and he said, oh, I was in your essay. And I said, yes. And I said, and I quoted you correctly. He said, no, I still stand by that. So. Um, but the one thing I, I was, when I was thinking about it and trying to get these numbers to match, you know, how many people in the community versus how many people in Parliament, I realised that, and I've met lots of climate change deniers in my life, in my research, is that I kind of get why somebody denies climate change who, when it's not their job to get their head around it. Um, so the people I've met who deny climate change in the community uh, may or may not have a scientific education, may or may not see the evidence around them. They are busy living their lives, doing their jobs, raising their kids, and let's face it, to really, to really understand the science of climate change is quite terrifying and requires a real shift in the way you think about a whole range of things, the economy, your future, your children, it's quite terrifying. So I kind of understand why there are climate change deniers in the community. Politicians' role <laughs> is not the same as community members. Their job is to understand what the CSIRO is saying and what all the other experts are saying. And their job, the central part of their job, of your job, is to secure the, the, the livelihoods and the security of living Australians in the next generation. So I don't let them off the hook because their responsibility and their job is very different than the normal members of the community. So even if I ended up finding out that there are exactly the same numbers of climate change deniers in the federal parliament as there are in the community, the responsibilities are not the same. Yes, I find it interesting when I hear the same people who've said, uh, we've listed all the drugs on the PBS that the experts told us to list. Uh, then turning around and saying you can't trust climate science experts. I, uh, I scratch my head. Well, that, that's uh, interesting. Do you see that, you know, do you see that kind of variability in terms of when politicians decide to believe certain experts? Because there must be tons of experts and scientists and academics that come in and say one thing and that they would listen to that and then not yeah, listen to another one. Fairly confident none of my colleagues understand how every drug that's listed on the PBS works but they choose to trust those experts and go ahead. But yet yeah. we haven't gotten into that frame with science. So you, um, you sum up Australian politics as being a good government, the, the view that, quote, a good government is one that makes it hard for people to buy a gun and easy for people to buy health care. 
Yeah, uh, that's a good combination. <laughs> which, which sort of reminds me of a, another comment I once heard that pretty much most of Australian politics, maybe with the exception of Lee Rhiannon and Mark Latham, would comfortably fit within the US Democratic Party. Uh, do you think we actually have a, a, real, a narrower ideological spectrum than, than we might commonly think? I think we do because we have a different um, national story and different institution, you know, different, different um, well, everything, different population, different scope, um, different founding concepts um, in terms of, you know, uh, our government and a different constitutional structure. And we're I mean, smaller, right? And we're smaller, and so it's easier. You know, I, I think one of the really early um, revelations as a researcher is that when I started to travel around the country, is that some people would say, some people would think, oh, you know, people in Western Australia are so dramatically different than people in Victoria. And it's really not the case. <laughs> I mean, in terms of in terms of there are really big differences in America in terms of a whole range of things. They're just really actually not the case in Australia. Um, we we over uh, dramatise geographical differences um, in terms of mindset. Absolutely, we're a much more um, politically homogenous society than we would imagine, and part of that's about how small we are. Yeah. So if I listen to a recording of one of your focus groups, I would have a, a hard time guessing which which state or region you're unless in. It's, unless it's close to football, yeah. Football yeah, is one yeah. of the only... The only real differences, I've got to say, is that um, is people said you can never, ever do field work in Victoria during um, AFL final season. <laughs> and, and that was where every time we would kind of look at the year, we kind of block out Easter and all this, and no Victorian field work. That's actually the main difference. Um, you, the bigger, there are bigger differences about people who live in cities and country. That's actually a much bigger... But it doesn't matter whether it's Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne right. or regional Queensland. So that is different. And we're starting to see those big differences play out in politics really importantly. So I think we saw a lot of it play out in the New South Wales election. That Sydney, Sydney versus the rest of the state, um, I think it's one of the... I think we can see that play out much more than you know, city differences um, uh, across states. So I want to go back to your original question, Andrew, what was it? Uh, whether the, whether oh, yeah. our, our ideological spectrum is oh, narrower yeah. than we think. I think that one of the differences, and obviously that point that I made about, you know, a good, a good government, a good society is where it's easy to get a gun and hard to get healthcare. Oh, it, easy, e easy to get healthcare, hard to get a gun. It's a bit of a sideswipe in America. But at the heart of that is a view, it reflects the, the way most Australians feel about their relationship to government. So one question that Americans often ask me is, are Australians for big government or for small government? And I said, well, that kind of language isn't there, big or small. It's just, is it effective? Is government doing what it's promised to do? If in order to deliver outcomes, which is the best possible outcome for the, big, the, you know, the largest group of people, if that means a big government program, like something like the NDIS or Medicare, then that's good. If it's actually not going to deliver, then small government or diffuse government or, or decentralised government is the way to go. They're very practical rather than ideological. I think there's enormous strengths because what it, what it gives is a real flexibility for politicians to be able to recognise changing conditions and opportunities. 
So gun reform for John Howard was a perfect example. It was a real challenge for a Liberal government associated with the um, National Party to say, we're actually going to buy back all these guns and we're going to get rid of it. He saw an opportunity and, um, and took a flexible rather than um, inflexible um, doctrinaire approach. And I think that when Australians look back and think about all those reforms that have made us a kind of a reasonably affluent, um, healthy um, and safe society, it's politicians working out this is a moment for us to do something for government to play a role. So I think that that comment was actually more about our view about government being an effective shaper of not just the economy but who we are as a society. And I think that sets us apart. That and compulsory voting, I think, are the two things that set us apart from you know, a, a, a democracy like the United States and also Britain. Rebecca Hundley, thank you very much.